are in a um, series called Heart Disease. It's our final week. Boo-hoo, it's over. And um, what we've been talking about is the fact that just like in our bodies, if there's an ailment, if there's something wrong and we let it go and we don't address it, we don't get it checked out, Like, for example, if you're a man and your left arm is tingling and you have tightness in your chest and shortness of breath, the thing not to do is put out that fire with a cold Diet Coke, okay? It's to go to the doctor. We all know that, right? If you have a problem with your teeth and it starts to hurt, the thing to do is not to just chew on the other side and hope it goes away. You go to the dentist to get it taken care of or else it gets worse and worse and worse. That same idea with our bodies is what happens with our heart. There are certain things in our heart that if we let them sit there, if we let them take root, if we let them kind of um, begin to grow and get create an environment where they can thrive, it will end up destroying the relationships around us. It'll destroy our relationship with God. It'll destroy our relationship with others. And so what we've been doing as we've been going over some of these, and the first we talked about was guilt, and we said that the remedy for guilt is confession. And we had bricks up here, and some were red and some were white, and we talked about how there's good guilt and bad guilt. The good guilt were the green bricks, and we were talking about how that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In other words, guilt is not bad. The feeling of guilt can turn us from things that God would have us turn from. You know, don't watch that. Don't do that. Don't enter into that relationship. Don't. And and so that guilt is good. But then there's bad guilt. And that's the guilt that we carry around all the time. Maybe from something we've done in the past. And maybe it's guilt from something we've placed on ourselves. We had had a goal that we didn't make. Or it's guilt that someone else has put on you. Maybe your parents or a friend or whatever and that, that's those were the red bricks and we talked about how to distinguish those two how to make sure we, we hang on and we pay attention to the, the conviction that God gives us so that we can change and how we get rid of the guilt that others have put on and then we talked about anxiety and we said that every anxious thought is a call to prayer and we again had the bricks up and we said that we're anxious for nothing we were not to be anxious about anything but in everything we're to pray and so when you, and, and we talked about how anxiety can come out of nowhere, like you're, you're minding your own business, you come home from work, you go to the mailbox and you know, out comes a letter that says IRS and all of a sudden it's just like, oh, and what do we do? We go to our heavenly father, every anxious thought, every feeling, every, oh no, what if that's a call to prayer? So we said every anxious thought is a call to prayer and then we talked about bitterness and how if we just hang on to bitterness, it's going to eat us alive. It's going to de- totally destroy us. And we said that the, the key to getting rid of bitterness is forgiveness. And then we talked about how um, w- that when we forgive, it sets us free, not just the person we're forgiving. It sets us free from having to keep a, a record of wrong. It sets us free from having to figure out how will they ever repay us. And we talked about the fact that they'll never be able to repay us. You, you can't wrong someone and get it back to a pre-wrong state. It just doesn't happen. It can't happen. And so we're, we're set free through forgiveness of having to worry about how are they going to pay us back. They can't do that. 
And then we talked about greed, and we uh, talked about how uh, giving conquers greed. And at the end, you know, we, we said how, how our kind of our love for things and our love for our future and how we just want to retire someday and just kind of you know, kind of breeze through life. How God um, doesn't mind us having things, doesn't mind us retiring. But if it's the first thing on our mind and we just hold on to our money super tight, it's going to destroy us. And so we talked about um, percentage giving and, and, and tithing and it got really uncomfortable. And then, you know, and you guys came back. Well, so that's really good. I'm really happy. But uh, uh, giving conquers greed. This morning, what we're going to talk about is kind of the granddaddy of them all with our heart. And uh, that God talks about the fact that he hates this particular thing. Um, and Jesus modeled the opposite of this particular thing. And it's pride. And the thing about pride is pride is super easy to see in others. <laughs> And really hard to see in ourselves because the Bible says, and we've kind of been touching on this throughout the whole series, the heart is exceedingly wicked. Who can understand it? And so to be able to see pride in ourselves is very difficult. And so the, the, the comment, you know, oftentimes you'll be talking to somebody and they'll be name dropping or they'll be talking about what they did in high, you know, the high school football team or whatever. And we're just like, man, that guy's so prideful. But then when it comes to us, it's very difficult to see. And so I put, um, I put some pictures of some people uh, up here that, um, that kind of get us started at arrogance. Uh, it helps when the little people understand you're simply better than they are. And uh, that's why I had you sit down and say to the person next to you, I'm better than you, which was just probably a lot of fun to say that because you probably believed it already. Um, so, so you look at arrogant people. Right? It's a picture of Rush Limbaugh. For those of you Democrats, you think this guy is the most arrogant pompous guy in the world. And if you're uh, a Republican, you think this guy is. And so, you know, depending on, you know, where you get your news and all that kind of stuff, like you, you look at these different kind of characters and you think, man, they're so uh, arrogant. And maybe you think actresses and actors are, are arrogant. And maybe you think Steve Jobs is arrogant because you read his book and he's just a, you know, the kind of leader he is and he thinks he's so smart, which he was incredibly, so he kind of gets a pass. Uh, but then like Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, right, you, you might think he, he's kind of a thing. And, you know, Charlie Sheen, you might not think he's arrogant, you might think he's crazy. Um, but th- this kind of this goes on, I think Donald Trump's in there somewhere. Yeah, Donald Trump, you think, man, if I had a toupee, I'd never be that arrogant, but... Um, <laughs> He does, and uh, he is. And, you know, even, even The Simpsons has an arrogant, you know, comic book guy's that character for, for that. But th- the point is that there's a lot, you know, wh- guess whose picture isn't up there? Mine. <laughs> because when I had to figure out what picture could I put up there that everyone would kind of agree that's an arrogant person, my picture never <laughs> crossed my mind. Some of yours might have for a second, but the point, no, I'm kidding, right? right? We, we don't put ourselves in that group because arrogance is really easy to see in other people, but it's really difficult to see in us. And the thing about God is that he sees everybody's heart. You can be the nicest guy in the world, nicest lady in the world, but in your heart, you're more arrogant than some of the people we showed. 
And so, you know, it, it's just very difficult. Even, even in raising kids, it's hard. I mean, you've had, um, you know, I don't know if you're like us, but when our kids were very small, you tell them all the time, you can do anything. You're the smartest. You're the prettiest. You're the, the most handsome. You're the best at baseball. You're the best at soccer. And you do that for a number of years, and then you spend the rest of the life trying to tell them that they're not as great as they think they are. I mean, it's like, it's like you, you know, it's like this is the way it goes. You, we don't want to hear it from somebody else. You know, if you tell your kid he's the best in baseball and then he kind of walks into a room with all your friends and he's like, I'm the best in baseball. You're like, hey, come on, knock it off. Because it's, it's ugly. See, we don't need a verse to tell us that we shouldn't be prideful. We, we kind of know this in, in just human nature. And we kind of know that when we see it, we don't want to see it. But it's really hard to see in us. I just want to read, even though we don't need a verse telling us not to be prideful, I, 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 we're just going to read one. Uh, it says this, uh, it's in John, 1 John two sixteen. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This boastful pride of life is the idea that my life, my agenda, my family, my retirement, my job, my kids, my, mind, mine, that's the most important thing. As CJ was talking about the idea that worship is just connecting our story to God's story. I love that. And, 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 but, but pride's the opposite. It's saying God's story is there because of my story, right? And so, so, um, 1 John 2.16 says that that boastful pride of life, that idea that it's all about me, it comes from the world. It doesn't come from our Heavenly Father. Okay, I'll just do one more verse on, on, on pride. Does this even need to be in the Bible? <laughs> do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. I mean, that, that's just a basic human thing. Like, I don't even know if Paul was like, really, I'm supposed to write that? Doesn't everybody know that, right? But he, he, he writes that. Okay, one, one more, and then, then I promise we'll go, we won't do it anymore. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Isn't that true? When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Have you ever uh, tried to show off when you're doing something and you failed miserably at it and then it just, it was worse than if you had just not said anything at all. That's what failblog.org builds its whole thing around is videos of people trying to show off that fail miserably. We, is, verse is so true. Okay, one more and then, and then that's it. We're not gonna have any more about uh, pride. Um, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. And then just one more. This is the last one. Uh, okay. It says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Here's what's happening right now. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and essentially the church was sleeping with temple prostitutes, which is bad, okay? So Paul's writing to them about this particular thing and he says, listen, and this is the thing we're gonna have to get. Your, it's not just about you. When you become a follower of Christ, when I become a follower of Christ, all of a sudden, my body becomes use, a useful vehicle for the Holy Spirit to move. Now, if that's true, if Paul says, listen, guys, and he was talking specifically about um, that particular problem they had, but this goes far beyond that. If all of a sudden, 
My life, my body, my money, my mind and my heart and my passions and my dreams, if all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is inside of me, directing and guiding and convicting, how is that going to affect my pride level? Now watch what Paul says. And this, this really, this is all part of the same verse, so it really is the end. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are not your own. I am not my own. I've been purchased. Now, imagine, if you will, that you wake up in the morning. What would your week look like if you got up in the morning? If I got up in the morning and I said, God, not my will be done, but yours today. What would you have your servant do? There's no room for pride there. There, There's no room for my own agenda. Once the Holy Spirit takes control of my life, there's really no room for me and what I want. Now you think, well, man, that's, that's kind of, that's a tough teaching. I mean, what, so what do we do? Do we just, are we just like robots and God just, just kind of guides us around? Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of show us in the scripture of something that happened to one of the prophets that I think is the key to getting pride out of our lives and, and bringing, because when pride goes, you replace it with humility. And I, I heard this corny saying, um, I might even have said it myself. It says that um, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And so I, I kind of believe that and for a long time. Like, yeah, humility is not thinking less of yourself. You're not beating yourself up going, I'm worthless, I'm worthless, I'm terrible. And that, that has all sorts of issues with it that, that need a therapist. But uh, it's not just thinking less of yourself. Uh, you know, it's thinking of yourself less. But then I thought to myself, well, if you think of yourself less, aren't you really thinking of yourself more? Because you think of yourself and then you're like, I need to think of myself less. And that's twice you've thought of yourself already. And like, how can you possibly monitor whether you think of yourself less? Because if you do, you're thinking of yourself. So I started thinking, but that, that can't really be humility of just you constantly thinking of yourself and measuring kind of what, do, am I thinking of myself less? Is it more than less? That just seems like self-absorbing, you know? And so as I began to search the scripture and look at what it meant to be prideful and look at what it meant to be humble, I found this constant theme that's in there. This, this constant idea that, that maybe there's something different than just us. Maybe there's some way to be able to approach our lives in a way where humility kind of just enters in. The, the door is left open for humility to come and live with us. That it's not this, I'm really going to try to be humble. I'm really going to try not to be prideful. And as I began to look at uh, in the scripture, I, I found this section of scripture in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. And Isaiah was a prophet, and um, prophets in the Old Testament had it, had it pretty difficult. Because once God would put a vision on their heart, they had to say it. <laughs> like they couldn't not say it. And so I, I don't know 
what it's like in your family, but in the morning when we all wake up and we're having breakfast together or whatever, I can't stand people telling me about their dreams. I don't know what it is about my personality, but if you like, oh man, I had the weirdest dream last night, I go, oh, because who cares? It doesn't mean anything. It's a dream. So, you know, you go, oh, yeah, I dreamt I was flying. Okay, did you run into anything? Like, what was okay? So what? Oh, it was just really cool. Okay. I had a dream. You know, I was the quarterback of the Dodgers. You know, but the Dodgers are a baseball team. I know. Isn't that weird? And I was like on the pitcher's mound set, you know, and then a baseball, and then it turned into a donut, and I took a bite, and, I, and it exploded. You know, you're like, well, who cares? Like, what? Like, let's, I can make up stories too, right? So imagine you have a dream, because we're different in that, and like we all like to say our dreams, but we don't really want to hear anyone else's, you know, but when we have a dream and it's bizarre, it's like, Dude, I, gotta, I just got to get this off my chest. Imagine if you're a prophet in the Old Testament, and your dream is so real to you that it's like it happened, and then God says, go tell everybody. Imagine where you'd be in life if you know, people are like, hey, Isaiah, how's it going? You're like, oh, my God, good gracious. You would not believe what happened, you know? And, and then people are like, oh, man, there goes Isaiah. And so people, you know, that's why in the Bible it says uh, a, a prophet in his own town is without honor. It's like, can you imagine every morning? You're like, hey, Isaiah, you know, hey, guess what dream? I, I don't care, you know? You end, up, end up running away from the guy. Well, Isaiah had a dream in Isaiah chapter six. And I think it, it has embedded in it this, this idea that we're talking about of getting pride out of our, out of our lives. It says this, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, that's a fancy way of just saying back in 2005. I mean, it, it just kind of gives context to the, the dream he's about to give, okay? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple here's what i want us to do i just want to do a little exercise it's not weird i promise no one will take your wallet i just want everyone to close their eyes please i know i know it's weird i'm not doing anything fancy i just want you to begin as best you can to get this image in your mind okay so our our eyes are closed i'm just going to read this to you And you try as best as you can to visualize it. I saw the Lord. What does that look like? To see God. How how do you visualize that? Then it says he's seated on a throne. So is it in a castle? Is it in a... Just take that, that... that image of God seated on the throne and make it bigger. Whatever you have to do in your mind to make it bigger. And then, and then just make it bigger than that. And if you can, you might already be at infinity. Make it a bit bigger than that, okay? And then it says the train of his robe filled the temple. What, what does that look like? You see the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now keep your eyes closed because you're going you're gonna to get this next part too. 
Above him, above God, seated on the throne, were seraphs. Those are angels, the type of angel. Each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. You can, you can open your eyes. Now, we don't have time to go around, but like, what were you thinking about? Like, did, did, was God like, was his feet like on a mountain range as he was sitting down? Like, was it that, was it that big? Was, was one foot on like planet earth and one was on like Pluto and he's like kind of sitting down like, like this giant God of the universe. And, and how big were the angels? Were they just like giant planets? And did they, what, what did they do? Did they like fly around like hummingbirds where it's like, you know, and they're zipping, zipping all around or were they soaring like, like eagles? Isaiah experienced this right in front of his face in this vision, in this dream that he had. Isaiah was experiencing God right in front of him. Now watch what happens. And they were calling to one another. These are the angels. So they're they're calling out to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What did that sound like? How many angels were there? How many seraphs were there? Were there like a million? Were there like five? But they're just, you know, like what, 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 what do you think it was that he was seeing? God seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the seraphs were flying around with six wings, two covering their faces, and two their feet, and two they'd fly with. They're calling out, holy, holy, holy. That must have been a trip to experience that firsthand. Now watch what happens. It's not just what he sees and what he hears, but what he smells. Listen, it says, um, yeah, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Sometimes when we lead, when we have a worship leader here or whatever, we'll get on the flap. The worship was too loud at an exclamation point, which is sometimes it is. It's not, you can write that. Don't feel bad. You can totally write that. But imagine how many flaps you'd get if the angels were singing so loud, the doorpost shook and like the rafters shook and the threshold shook. I mean, it was just like, holy, holy. And then all of a sudden, you know, smoke just like fills up everything. This is what Isaiah was experiencing. I don't know what you'd write on your flap for that. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I thought there might be a fire. No more smoke, you know, whatever. I, I, you know, what, what do you do? This is what Isaiah, what Isaiah saw. Now, Isaiah's response to me, I think really gets to the heart of what we're trying to talk about this morning. Isaiah experiences God in a way that none of us will probably experience until we're dead 
if we know Christ and we're with him for eternity, this is how we'll see it. I mean, when you read Revelation, you get a pretty good idea with what it's going to be like when we're not in the kingdom of this world, but we're truly in the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be amazing. You can read about that. But what's Isaiah's response? And what would your response be? Would it be like, I can't, I don't know if I'd be able to speak. I don't know if, if I'd just be like, wow. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd, I'd probably say something stupid or try to crack a joke. That's what I probably would do. Watch Isaiah's response. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. I, woe to me. I'm, I am ruined. I'm done. I've come face to face with God Almighty. And I, in other words, there's no hope for me right now. I have nothing to offer. I, I, I got nothing. I, I just go, I, this is it. I, I guess I'm going to die now. I, I think this is the beginning of rooting out pride in our lives and opening the door. And watch what happens, what he says. He says, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The first thing Isaiah does is he gets right to the core of who he is. He's a sinner, right? And, and this is a prophet with a Bible book named after him. This is Isaiah. And when, but when he comes face to face with God, he says, Woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. You see how when we get before God, how we're all the same. You see what Isaiah's saying? Before God, we're all the same. There's no me better than you, you better than me. There's no comparison. There's no way to say, well, you know what? I, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips, but this dude's a total man of unclean lips. Have you seen him? When you're before God, everybody's equal. Whether you're Isaiah, big prophet guy, or you're just at your job. When you go before God, we all become equal. He says, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he says this. And this is, this is where we're going to kind of see what's going on. He says, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. My eyes have seen the King. I'm done. I, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and now I've seen God. I'm dead. See, here's what I think and, and, and this is kind of our one point for this morning. I would say humility is seeing God for who he really is. See, I think the more we understand who God is, how holy he is, how loving he is, how all-knowing he is, how um, omniscient he is, that's, uh, uh, how omnipresent he is, how he's ev everywhere, the more we focus on who God is, how big he is, how powerful he is, what he's done in creation. And we just understand, wow. I mean, like CJ was singing, you know, those birds are composing and not, there's not a note out of tune and a note out of place. Like when we begin to really understand, oh, 
That's God. It's not a matter of us having to go, well, I'm terrible. We will just naturally go, oh man, I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm a, I, can't, I can't have my kingdom compete with that kingdom. I'm going to lose every time. It's the, the odds are totally stacked against me. Like, like if I have pride, if I have my own agenda, and believe me, I do as a pastor, sometimes I'll find myself with an agenda for the church or an agenda for something or something I'm trying to push through or whatever that I sit back and I go, man, is God really behind this? Is this really about his kingdom or about my kingdom? When I can focus on God, all of a sudden, that pride begins to just, by, by, by its very nature, just begins to go, go away. I don't have to go, oh, I'm not going to be prideful, I'm not going to be prideful, I'm not going to be prideful. How can I be prideful when I'm standing in front of the living God? Understanding who he is and, and how, what he's done to save me and all those kinds of things. So uh, humility is, is um, seeing God for who he really is. Now watch what happens. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Not even the angel could grab it. So all of a sudden the angel, I don't know how he carried it because both hands are covering his face and both wings and two, maybe he had little tiny hands. I have no idea, right? And he's flying at Isaiah with a burning coal. Yeah. Imagine you're there, you're having this thing and you're like, man, I'm undone. And all of a sudden some angel comes swooping down with this red hot coal right at you. Okay, this is what Isaiah, this is the, the imagery Isaiah is using for us. He had taken tongues from the altar. Now watch this. This is one of the sweetest Bible verses you'll read because Isaiah's come face to face with the living God and he understands that he, he doesn't have anything to offer Quite the opposite. He's probably realizing there is no reason I should even be in the presence of God. I'm so unclean. Now watch what happens when this, this thing comes. With it, he touched my mouth. He said, see, this has touched your lips. Listen, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Here's how it plays out in my life. The more in touch I am with my sin nature and who I am and who I was and how I've been redeemed and the sacrifice that Jesus had to do on the cross, the less I just even care about my own kingdom, the less I even care about myself. It's not that hard of work to get rid of pride when our focus is on our Heavenly Father. Now, it's always going to be there. It's in our flesh nature, and we're always going to put, we're always going to go towards it. Like we said, the heart is exceedingly wicked. Who can understand it? I mean, right? You come to face to face with the living God. It's like, how could you ever sin again? Well, you know, again, we do. But, but here he comes in this trembling, terrible moment of fear and realization that God is holy, eternal, immortal, that he's huge, that there are angels that sing out loudly, it shakes everything in their smoke, and yet God comes and says, your guilt's atoned for. You know what I believe that red hot coal represents? The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That that burning red coal 
touches his lips and says, oh, you're worried, you're a man of unclean lips? Done. Now listen, what does our week look like if we can be in touch with that when we wake up in the morning? What does your job look like if you're in your cubicle going, man, God, you're so giant and so loving and so forgiving. How, what does the stack of paperwork look like? What does school look like? What does your family look like? What do your finances look like? If that's how we're coming to God, what does your pride look like? It's probably not really there. There's a sense of humility, a sense of brokenness, a sense of excitement that we've been redeemed. I, I think this particular section of scripture really nails it. And then this happens. Then I heard a voice of the Lord. Okay, God's speaking now. He says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? In other words, how do we get the message of this kingdom to that kingdom? Who's going to do that? This is so important for us. Because oftentimes our pride and our kind of own agenda and our own kingdom and all this kind of stuff stops us from this very next step. Because God's saying, listen, your, your sin's forgiven. I mean, you're, you're done. I mean, you can stay in my presence. I mean, you know, you've got a relationship with me. It's like, now we got to get this message out. Who are we going to send? And Isaiah says these famous, famous words. He said, here am I, send me. You know, you know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like once, once we come face to face with God and he snatched us out of ourselves and out of our own sin and out of the attack of the, the, uh, of the enemy and all that kind of stuff and all this stuff. Remember we talked about the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, it's from the world. And he rescues us and redeems us. It's almost like Isaiah's like, like who are we gonna send? Like, well, I don't have anything to do. <laughs> I'll go. Like, I had a bunch of stuff at work, but now that's not really important. I, I was going to, you know, do this. But like, God, what, do you, what would you have me do? It's almost like Isaiah's connecting with that verse in 1 Corinthians that we read. I'm not my own. You bought me with that hot coal that touched my lips and forgave my sin. You've, you've made me adequate. I, I, I don't have anything else to do. I, I don't, I'm, I'm nobody but yours. Isn't that amazing? I mean, for me, I just think that is the key to getting rid of pride. Is seeing God for who he really is. And and it's like, wow, you know, that doesn't work for me. I just don't think, if that's the case, that we see God for who he really is. We've kind of made him into some type of, you know, butler or whatever. When we see him high and exalted, he says, here am I. Send me. As uh, CJ and the band comes back up, they're going to lead us in a song. And um, I, I, I want us to be able to meditate on this particular verse here that, I, that I'm going to show. That I'm hoping we can take into our week this week. 
as we kind of wake up in the morning and as, as the Holy Spirit, like what so often happens when the word is shared is that now the Holy Spirit can work on us during the week and all of a sudden, um, this happens to me all the time, all of a sudden on a Wednesday or Thursday, something will come up and I'll go, you know what, God, I'm not seeing you for who you really are. I'm, I'm making it about myself. I'm, I'm hoping that this verse will be one that we can focus on. David, who, who really did have a pretty good grasp on who God was. As a matter of fact, um, God said about David that his spirit, God's spirit is on him. Like, like he got it. He understood what worship was about. He understood, and he understood what his own sin was about. He, that's, he was the one who wrote, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any evil way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David writes this, be still. He's writing, he's, he's, he's writing for God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The idea is stop. Stop trying to advance your own kingdom. Stop trying to figure things out. Stop with the whole idea that if you don't do this, it won't happen. Stop. And maybe this week, maybe, maybe it will be an act of just closing your eyes and going, I see the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and I see the seraphs, and they're flying around, and you know what? This just is not a big deal. 